0: As fast as the market is right now, people don't actually have time to come in and look at things before they're gone to make an offer before they're sold. So we do a lot of sight unseen offers and a lot of videos for our clients because the market is just crazy right now and it's difficult to do. You're listening to The Life & Money Show, a podcast that brings you
1: the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey there, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with the fabulous Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I'm doing amazing. How are you doing? What'd you guys do this weekend? I think you guys went cherry <laughs> picking, right? I'm sunburned. Can you believe it or not? It's a very yeah. rare thing for Asian yeah. Americans to get <laughs> sunburned, but here I am, giant redneck, literal redneck. Here I am, but we were out and about as we're recording this. We're in mid-June and California is just about to open up. We'll see exactly how it goes, but you know, I we're, heard. I, every, wow. everybody's like we're excited. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. And so this weekend we met up with a couple of different friends. We went out to the San Francisco Zoo out by you. And then we also went mm-hmm. cherry picking. And so hence the sunburner. And I used to, uh, I haven't put on sunscreen in a long time. And now I'm going to have to do that again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So fun. I can't wait when we go back to go, go cherry picking again, because it's something I think we were supposed to do that, like right before the pandemic hit last year and didn't get chance <coughs> to go. So it's been a couple of years. So yeah.
1: Yeah. So fun. Yeah. It was super fun. Always fun to get out and about and find new things to explore with the kids. I know you're out and about exploring with your kids as well and traveling. Oh my gosh, this epic trip. And so that is fantastic. Well, let's switch gears and dive into our conversation today, which is with Avery Carl. She's a real estate investor and top agent at the short-term shop and author of the upcoming book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth, which the title of that book really encapsulates exactly what she specializes in. And in this conversation, she talks about how she came to be involved in short-term rentals, especially out in the Smoky Mountains, which I used to live in Tennessee. And I remember my family, we took a road trip out to the Smokies and it's beautiful, beautiful part of the country And I do remember actually, as we were driving through the area, my parents, they don't make hotel reservations ahead of time. They're just like, let's just stop by whatever <laughs> roadside hotel we find. And so I do remember actually during this trip, it was late at night. We had spent all day sightseeing and then late at night, my parents were like, okay, let's go find a hotel Then drive by hotel after hotel after hotel. They're all booked. And there were not that many, but they were all like no vacancy, uh-huh. no vacancy, no vacancy. And this was, of course, years and years ago. So they didn't have many short term rentals, or Airbnb didn't exist at that time. But it really made sense when Avery was talking about how, in the Smokies, it's this sort of magical pocket where there's tons of tourism. Lots of people come to the area every year, but there's not a lot of hotels. Mm-hmm. And so I experienced that firsthand and so it makes sense how she like discovered this pocket and started to invest in short-term rentals there and how lucrative and how successful that's been and how now she helps other people not only to invest in the Smokies but other pockets for short-term that are great for short-term rentals. It's really cool.
2: Yeah, it was great because I feel like in this episode we really got to deep dive into all of the different types of short-term rentals, which I didn't even know that there were different types, but she kind of broke those down. We got to talk a little bit about where it makes sense to invest into a short-term rental property, when it makes sense to buy a property versus arbitrage, which for any of our listeners, if you don't know, basically what that means is instead of buying the property, you rent the property, and then you kind of do like a sublease out to your short-term rentals. And she talked about kind of the benefits and the pros and cons of each of those, which is interesting to hear. Hear from somebody who has a background that's been doing short term rentals. And I think maybe she's kind of done both. And so it was interesting just to kind of hear that background and just kind of like we do- dived into like numbers and stuff too. So we got to talk about where the break even is and kind of like what cash on cash returns someone could expect. So if anyone out there who's listening who's thinking about getting into short term rentals or thought maybe this is the path for you, this episode is just jam packed with so much data points that for me, when I'm out they're making a decision. These are the data points I would want to know to know whether or not this is an industry I'd want to get into. So yeah, jam-packed with value. Such,
1: yes. Yeah, Deep dives into why short-term rentals and who it's right for and what the strategy is. And I learned a ton. I know you learned a ton. So our listeners are mm-hmm. going to love this episode. Now, for all of you, if you're after listening to this, if you're like, oh my gosh, short term rentals is my jam, definitely go and get in touch with Avery Carl and her team. But after this, if you're like, you know what, actually, I wanna take a more passive route. I wanna take the long term wealth part of short term rental, long term wealth, but maybe not necessarily the short term rental part, then come over to us, grab a free copy of our book. It's called Investing for Good. It's a fantastic introduction to everything that's involved with real estate syndications. In passive investing, you can get your free copy at goodeginvestments.com slash book. And with that, let's dive into our conversation with Avery Carl.
0: Avery, welcome to the show. How are you? I am awesome. Thank you so much for having me
1: always good to have a powerful woman in real estate on the show. So we're thrilled to have you here today. Now, Avery, you've been extremely busy the last few years. Since 2017, you've sold over $300 million in short-term vacation rentals, and you're an investor yourself with over, I think you said over 42 units. Is that right? Yes, correct. And you were also named one of Wall Street Journal's top 100 and Newsweek's top 500 agents in 2020. So huge accomplishments. Start by telling us of all the different ways to invest in real estate. What drew you to short-term rentals and how did you get your start in that space?
0: Well, what drew me to short-term rentals initially was not having much capital. So I had Basically enough money for one down payment on one single family house. And my husband and I thought, well, okay, what can we buy that's going to make us the most amount of money so that we can go buy more faster? And at the time we were living in Nashville. So we landed on short-term rentals, didn't want to do it in Nashville though, because their regulations are just crazy. You don't want to buy a short-term in Nashville. You'll lose your permit like immediately. If you can even get one. So we thought, okay, well, where can we go that it's like a normal thing to do to go rent a house for the weekend? So we landed on the Smoky Mountains, which is a few hours east of Nashville. And that is what I call a mature vacation rental market, which is kind of what we target now that we're like real investors, so to speak. That's what we stick to in terms of our short term rental investments. But we chose the Smokies because there's not a lot of hotel presence. There's tons of tourism. I think it got 20 million visitors last year, as opposed to 13 million the year before. So it, it grew really well. But it's always been the number one most visited national park in the country. So tons of tourism and not a lot of hotels. So all those tourists are going there and renting cabins for the weekend or a week or however long they're staying. So super friendly regulations. Then there's also the tourism to support the cash flow. So, we bought one there, did really well with that, and then scaled that into five in about a year and a half. And then at that point, we had enough cash flow coming in that we thought, okay, well, now we can, we really have enough cash generating to scale. So, then we scaled into some more long terms, which eventually led to. A 12 unit apartment building last year. And so now we've got 41 doors. We do still buy short term rentals if a good deal comes up. Bought one in April. I'm under contract on another one right now. So we kind of use short terms to as like cash flow turbochargers to go buy other things or more short terms, but just more real estate in general. I don't think there's
1: a listener out there who wouldn't love a cash flow turbocharger. So- <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So I love how you look at it too, is sort of like not the be all end all, but sort of like a stepping stone to get to that long-term strategy. And I know that that's what your upcoming book is all about too, which we're going to get into, but take us back for just a second. So how did you even know that you wanted to invest in real estate in the first place? Was that something that you were involved in before getting into that first short-term rental?
0: Just barely. So we moved to Nashville from New York City. And I didn't have my license at the time. I was in grad school and had a music business job. And our agent at the time when we moved to Nashville was really trying to get us to buy in this super hip... Fast appreciating area. And we said, no, no, we came from Brooklyn. We don't want neighbors. We want to go out in the country. We want some acreage. So we bought something out in the country, but we thought, okay, well, we've got some money left over. Maybe we should buy one of those fast appreciating houses. We didn't even know it was called real estate investing when we did that. It was the dumbest trigger pulling I've ever done but it actually ended up working out really well. So we bought we did buy a house in one of those places and we thought that okay maybe this house will have appreciated enough in 18 years to pay for our kids college. So dumb. Then we got the first rent check. So we did find a place. The mortgage on that is 650 bucks a month and we rent it for 1600 bucks a month. So it's actually a really good little deal and uh, we're actually going to 1031 exchange that this year. But it was after that one that we thought, okay, this, we're onto something here. Let's do some more of this. We want to make a business out of this. And then we started actually educating ourselves by reading and listening to podcasts and things like that. But that first one, we just kind of took a shot in the dark and luckily it worked out really well.
1: Yeah, that sounds like the my first foray into real estate investing too. And Julie's as well to some extent, although I think she did more due diligence than I did. Your experience sounds like mine. My husband and I just, just sort of did a quick back of the napkin like, yeah, I think our mortgage would be this and I think we could rent it for this yeah, that number is bigger than that number. Let's give it a shot.
0: <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah, that's so, pretty much what we did.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad it worked out. And then, so you got into the short-term rental space. You realized Nashville wasn't the right market and you found this amazing market. It sounds like in the Smokies where there's not a lot of hotels, but there's a lot of tourism. I've heard a lot about it. Actually, I've heard multiple people talking about that as a great short-term rental market. So for our listeners who, I, at this point, I think everybody's familiar with it. Airbnb. But just in case for our listener, any listeners out there who might not be as familiar with the short-term rental space, tell them a little bit about who are you renting to? Is it executives who are traveling? Is it tourists? Is it um, traveling nurses? Are there different audiences for short-term rentals? And how did you establish the audience you were going after?
0: So your audience is kind of determined by where you're investing and what type of market. So there's three types of markets you can invest in for short-term rentals. The first one is a metro market like Nashville, for example. Second one is what I call a fly-to vacation market. So your big expensive ones like Aspen or Hawaii, vacations that people save up all year to go on sometimes for years. And then the regional drivable vacation market, We focus on that regional drivable vacation rental market. If you're renting in a metro market, then you are targeting not only vacationers, but possibly business travelers or even in-town traffic that are waiting for a house to be built or something like that, stashing their in-laws. Things like that are 100% to vacationers who are here to visit the Smoky Mountain National Park. And then our other ones we have are on the beach in Destin, Florida, and Santa Rosa Beach, the 30A area of Florida. And those are also vacationers who are coming to the beach. Mm, Okay. So tell us a little bit
1: about, I'm learning about those three different markets. So tell us a little bit about the pros and cons. And if somebody were trying to get into short term rentals, how would they know which one? is the best fit for them? I'll
0: give you the easy answer first. There are tons and tons of lists online. If you just take a quick Google of best places to invest in short-term rentals. But if you want to come to that idea independently without using Google. So really anywhere that you can think of, maybe that you went on vacation with your kids, I mean, with your family when you were a kid, where you rented a house or a condo instead of hotel, that's drivable from where you were living. It's typically beach markets or mountain markets or national park markets have fit those criteria that I have for, I mean, some beach markets don't work like South Florida. I don't mess with, but the smaller towns in the panhandle really fit that bill well, because they don't have a lot of hotel presence. So any market like that is a good place to start. You also want a market that already has regulations in place. So a lot of people get really excited when they find a market that has no short-term rental regulations. You don't want that. That is actually a more dangerous investment than buying in a heavily regulated place because it's not if the regulations are coming, it's when, and they may not be favorable for you. So you want to buy in a place where the regulations are well-established. So the markets that I'm in and in that the short-term shop Sells real estate in is the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, Blue Ridge, Georgia, Gulf Shores, Alabama, Destin 30A, Panama City Beach, Florida. And that's it for now. We're announcing a couple more later. So all of those areas are places where it's been the normal thing to do for people to rent a privately owned property instead of a hotel for decades and decades. So because of that, the cities figured out how to monetize and regulate that decades ago. So the regulations are very steady and stable, and you just come in get your permit, follow the rules, and you're good to go. And they've made it to where the municipalities are so dependent on the income from short-term rentals in markets like that, that it would be way too detrimental for them to ever regulate against them.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not in short-term rentals yet, but my husband and I do have rental properties and we're here in the Bay Area in California, which is heavily regulated on the rental market. And so us here, we went in knowing the regulations around rent control and turnover and things like that, but still they're tightening up. It seems every year, making it less desirable for us to be landlords here. So you're in a bunch of different markets. And so how do you stay on top of those regulations? I know that it's unlikely when it's heavily regulated for, and the market is dependent on that income for those regulations to change drastically, but they always could, right? Mm -hmm. There's always that chance. So how do you account for that when you go into a new market? And then what's your backup plan in case things don't go your way? So the
0: backup plan is just to sell the property. So I tell people, if you feel like you need to have the backup plan of being able to convert it to a long-term, then just go invest in a metro market. Because in the markets that I'm in, there are more short-term rentals than there are even people who live there. So the backup plan is there is no backup plan when you're investing in a vacation market other than selling the property. So we just keep an eye on what's going on. real easy way to do it is there are lots of Vacation rental owner pages by market. Like there's tons of them in the Smokies. There's, there's typically one for every community. So everybody will kind of be talking about what's going on in those and then just kind of keeping an eye on the news. But you'll typically, it'll slap you in the face if something pops up. So I wanted to ask a quick
2: question on that note. So I know that there's kind of two different ways that you could do this, right? You can either buy a home or buy an apartment or whatever and rent it out as a short-term rental, or you can do what we call arbitrage or what I know as arbitrage, right? Mm Whereas when you go out and you rent a property and then you just rent it out on short-term rentals. So talk to us a little bit about the pros and cons of each of those and maybe some of that risk mitigation, I would assume if you're arbitraging, right, as opposed to buying the property. Now in the scenario we just talked about, if things kind of go belly up in the area, you're not tied in, right? I mean, maybe you signed a lease for a year or six months or whatever, but talk to us kind of about the pros and cons of doing it one way versus the
0: other. Sure. So the pros of arbitrage, like you just mentioned, are that you don't have a lot of skin in the game in terms of putting down down payments and owning the property. The con is...
2: Avery, real
0: quick. (laughs) I
2: forgot. Can you explain to the listeners what arbitrage is? Because I'm kind of making an assumption that everyone knows what that is. But can you explain that real quick? Thank you. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So arbitrage is where you are basically the tenant and you are renting the property on a long-term rental basis from your landlord, but you are renting it out as a short-term rental. So you're almost kind of subleasing it onto Airbnb and running it as an Airbnb that way. The pros of that are that you don't own the property, so you don't have to make a big down payment on it. You don't have a mortgage on it. The cons are, though, that you don't own the property. You don't really have control of anything. Your landlord has control of everything. And the big distinction that I make between arbitrage and actually owning and investing in the property is arbitrage is creating a job for yourself, whereas buying the real estate is creating wealth for yourself. Love that. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: I love that distinction. I'm always curious. I had looked into getting into this a few years ago and before I moved into multifamily and I looked at doing it from the arbitrage side and it always seemed like there was so much risk because you go out there, you buy all this furniture, you furnish the place. And then let's say something happens, right? Like you said, you don't have the control. Landlord decides, Hey, this isn't working out for me anymore. Now you're stuck with like all this furniture What do you do in that situation or have you even done it or have all of yours typically been the buying way and not the arbitrage way?
0: I have never arbitraged. I have always bought and I have only bought one property that did not come furnished that I had to furnish myself.
2: Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So you always bought pre-existing short-term rentals then? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, one, actually the first one... It did come furnished, but it had been a long term rental and it was like trashed. It was really cute. It was the whole cabin aesthetic that it needed to be, but they'd had a tenant in there that had like smoked in it for three or four years and I don't think swept the entire time they lived there. So that did come with some furniture, but it needed a complete overhaul.
1: Mhm
2: mhm. And so when you take over these places that have all this furniture are you then just using what they have in this instance it says sounds like you just did a complete overhaul but in there when you're taking over a property are do you go in and say, okay, like when you're making your analysis and you look at the, are you looking at it like, okay, I need to replace the couch and I walk the whole property. I need to replace the desks or I need to update the lighting or like, how do you go about that from an analysis perspective of kind of running what your upfront numbers are? So you've got your down payment and then you've got your costs, maybe not to furnish the place, but maybe like replacement costs or what does that look like?
0: Yeah. So typically... The properties that have been short term rentals already, most of the furniture is fine. If it's something, I've never bought anything, I've seen it out there, but I've never actually ended up with one with furniture that's like totally grandma, golden girls, that needs to be like all completely replaced. (laughs) But typically, I'll only have to replace one or two things. And you do have to factor in that you're going to have to replace furniture probably a piece or two every two years when you have short term rentals. So I just kind of, Factor that into my miscellaneous costs. Factor that in at like I don't know one percent of the income a year, which we don't typically don't even use that much of it, but that's about what we put it at. I want to talk about something that a lot of I hear a lot of people talk about
1: when they think about short term rentals versus long term rentals. So they, the inherent assumption is with a long term rental, you sign a lease. You've got somebody in there for 12 months or more. They're paying rent every month. You don't have to worry about it. With a short-term rental, it could be maybe this week it's full, next week it's empty, next week it's full. How do you prepare for that in your assumptions and your underwriting to make sure that you're going to be able to cover your expenses?
0: So with short terms, you typically analyze everything based on an annual basis because there will be some seasonality. So in January, your numbers are going to be a lot different than in July. So there are several, not a lot yet, but several data sources out there that specialize in short-term rental measurement. AirDNA is the biggest one. And it's not gospel by any means, but their data is pretty good. It's basically a data scrape of all properties that are on Airbnb and VRBO in an area. So you can get a nice market-wide average picture of what properties are doing. So that can give you kind of a ballpark. Another big one that we use here at the short-term shop, we call it the enemy method, which is where you just get on either Airbnb or VRBO and look at the other properties in the neighborhood that you're investing in or your enemies and Look at their calendar, see what they're charging, how booked they are. And that will only be just kind of a micro picture of like what the next 60 days looks like. But you can get a pretty good idea doing that as well.
1: Got it. And then I guess it's dependent on your strategy. But when you're thinking about that enemy method, do you want to be like the best one in the neighborhood?
0: Do you want to be middle of the pack? What's your strategy there? Also kind of depends on the market that you're in. You obviously always want to be the best, but you don't want to fall into... If you're in really busy vacation market the way we are, you just want it to be like a cute, nice place to stay on par with everything else, but you don't have to get caught up in over-improving things. I think that a lot of people get caught up in it having to be this very special experience and it doesn't have to be. You want it to be nice. You want the guests to enjoy themselves and for it to feel like a hotel, basically, and not like somebody lives there when they're not there. But you don't have to go crazy. And that's kind of a pitfall that I see that a lot of short-term rental investors fall into is they fall into over-improvement and thinking, oh, I have to... like." turn this place into a spaceship that blasts off twice a week so I can be the best and make the most money when actually they're making a lower return on investment because they spent all that money turning it into a spaceship when they could have just made it upper middle to upper end of the pack and totally crushed it. So that's how (laughs) I feel about that.
1: That's such a good, valuable piece of advice. I mean, my family travels a lot. Julie's family travels a lot. We're, we spend an amount of time in Airbnbs and short-term rentals. And it's funny, this thing that happens when you travel, right? At home, I feel like we have a high bar, like, oh, we need granite countertops. We need these cabinets and these everything has to be to our life. It's our house, right? But then when we travel, it's this funny psychological thing. It's almost like the bar is so low. Like if I open the cabinet and I see olive oil, I'm like, oh, like this place (laughs) is amazing. Recently stayed in a place. I mean, the furniture wasn't amazing. It was good enough. And I was like, okay, this is good. They had a fully stocked kitchen, had all these different hot sauces. They had these outlets with like different, like multiple different plugs in. I was like, this place is amazing. (laughs) So I think you're right. It's like, you can't think of it the same way as you would think of your primary home. There's a certain bar, but you don't have to overspend to over-improve it. That's a really right. good tip. Okay. So I know that you're in multiple markets. You live in the Panhandle in Florida, but you're in the Smokies, you're in different markets. So tell our listeners, it sounds like this is something that you can do from afar. So how do you set that up? Do you need to go and visit that market at some point when you're maybe starting out or is that not necessary?
0: It's not necessary, but it is recommended just so you have some idea of what you're talking about when your guests ask you questions. And so you kind of have an idea of the lay of the land and where your property sits on it. But we have tons of clients that have never even seen their properties. So it's really just whatever your comfort level is. I would recommend coming to see the area at least once and then coming to your property once after closing just to kind of get a feel for it so that like if your guests ask you where something is, you can tell them so you're oriented. So a lot of times, as fast as the market is right now, people don't actually have time to come in and look at things before they're gone to make an offer before they're sold. So we do a lot of sight unseen offers and a lot of videos for our clients because the market is just crazy right now and it's difficult to do. So I would recommend at least like flying in and doing a drive around, even if you, there's not any properties that happen to be available right that second that you want to see. It's always good to get oriented. We'll get back to our conversation with Avery in just a minute.
3: Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid like we were that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country, and then partner with you to acquire these investments, and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals.
1: And now back to our chat with Avery Carl. Can you tell us a little bit about what the acquisitions
2: process looks like for you guys from your standpoint? Like, what are you guys looking for when you're looking for these properties for your clients? Maybe just give us the top three to five things that kind of are your non-negotiables that must be there in order for it to be something
0: that you would present to one of your clients. Okay, sure. So A, it has to be properly zoned. B, it needs to be properly priced, which at this point doesn't necessarily mean like the best deal ever, but it means that it needs to be able to cash flow at the price that the buyer is able to get it at. That's kind of what constitutes a deal the way the market is now is not the discount that you're able to get off of the price, but are they able to cash flow at the price they're able to get it for? And then the rest of it is honestly not that quantifiable. It's really just Mm kind of like coarse sense. Like, okay, is this a place I would stay in? Is this cute? Yeah, it is. So let's look Mm -hmm. at this and let's start analyzing and see kind of what the numbers are. Because you know, if you are looking to go on a mountain vacation and you come across like a brick ranch on Airbnb you're probably going to skip over that because you want to stay people come to the mountains they want to stay in a cabin or a lodge so it's really just kind of common sense like would you go to the mountains and stay in that or i mean almost same thing with the beach beach markets people want if it's not a condo they want like the cute bright colored or like bright white houses you don't really want like a brick ranch there either so it's pretty i mean it's just pretty common sense as long as it's not in the wrong zone or have some other defect that would keep it from cash flowing. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Talk to us a little bit about the
2: returns an investor can expect when they get into an opportunity like this. And maybe give us a ballpark. Like, What are properties cost in the smokies are they like maybe a price range so anyone who's listening can say oh well this is i have whatever $50,000 to put down on a on a property there and talk to us about what the returns look like and does it vary over from the first year some investments have kind of a catch up period right where you invest and then there's a period of time before you actually
0: start receiving money what does that look like for these types of properties sure so it's definitely a range when it comes mm-hmm. to short terms rather than... Because long terms are so easy and fit nicely into spreadsheets, but short terms are definitely a range. To answer your question first about return on investment. So anything over a 20% is pretty good cash on cash return, but uh-huh. we often see people get up into the 40 and 60% number. It not... I mean, we pretty often, but a minimum of 20% is what you can expect. Price ranges. So short terms in good markets that are going to gross a lot of money, they are more expensive than a long-term buy typically. So I have in my portfolio of 41 doors, 7 are short-term rentals, but in dollar value, it's about 50-50. Short term versus long term in my portfolio. So that being said, we'll use a cabin in the Smokies for example. So four bedrooms and up in most markets are typically the highest return on investment. So a like a cute, nice but nothing fancy four bedroom in the Smokies is probably going to cost around six hundred thousand, and it will probably gross around a hundred thousand a year whereas like a brand new really nice four bedroom that photographs really well is like a modern cabin you're looking more like 750 and that'll gross more like 120 and then the new thing that everybody wants in their cabins now in the smokies are indoor pools so like a brand new one with an indoor pool this four bedrooms you're looking at probably 850 900 and those will gross like really close to 200,000 i actually just had a client text me this morning who just finished his first full year with a five-bedroom and an indoor pool, and he grossed $230,000 last year. So a lot, they can definitely gross a lot. And it's really difficult to give net numbers because that's kind of a fuzzy number just because depending on the type of loan you get, if you're managing yourself remotely, or if you are using a property manager, what that net number will be. But typically, if you're getting a mortgage after all your expenses and your self-managing, you can expect to net about 40% of your gross, totally loose rule of thumb, by the way, but about 40% of your gross in the first year. And that'll go up some year over year as you get more reviews and you streamline your processes, but that's kind of what you can expect.
2: Is there a difference between, I know you said four bedrooms are usually the highest ROI. Is that pretty standard and true across any and every market? Like the more bedrooms you have, the greater the ROI? Or are there some markets where like a studio is like the best thing you could do? Or is that it just really kind of market dependent? Or what are your thoughts on that?
0: Across the markets that I'm in, the four bedrooms and up thing kind of holds true across all of them. But again, there's I don't invest in metro markets, so that might be a different vibe, especially if, so like in Nashville, that's the bachelorette party capital of the world. The more bedrooms, the better. Mm-hmm. But I have a friend who invests in Joshua Tree, which is not a metro market. That would be a vacation market. But he tells me there's not really anything above a three-bedroom in that market. So he does a lot of studios and mm-hmm. one bedrooms, and that's the best return on investment there. So without having experimented mm-hmm. with that, it's kind of hard to say. But in my experience, the four bedrooms and up do have the best returns. But I'm sure there are exceptions to that rule all over. Gotcha. I was going to talk about your upcoming book and the strategy
1: behind that. So your upcoming book is short-term rentals or short-term rental, long-term wealth. And so tell us a little bit about the strategy behind that. I know you mentioned a little bit with the turbocharge cash machine or cash cow or whatever you called mm-hmm. it, which still sounds phenomenal to me. I definitely want to get one of those. But so tell us a little <laughs> bit about how you use the short-term rentals in conjunction with other types of investing strategies?
0: Sure. So the book the first half of the book is about how to choose a market, how to analyze a property, how to source and you know cl- close the deal. And then the second half of the book is how to self-manage your property remotely. So by using technology and just a few boots on the ground team members in, in your market, which typically starts with j- just a cleaner and a handy person and you can build everybody else out from there. your cleaner is going to know a roofer, an HVAC tech, a contractor, things like that. So it just teaches people how to source and manage because the self-management part is really the part that makes you a lot of money because typically short-term rental management companies will take average 25% of your gross. So if you're my client from this morning, who was grossing 230 a year, that's a lot of money. That's your next investment like times two. So it's really just a pretty streamlined process with just the Airbnb and VRBO apps, and then a few other little streamlined channel management apps that... I mean, it's less than 30 minutes a week to do that. But my strategy was... I knew I wanted to have like a big portfolio of long-terms. I don't really think it's wise to have an entire portfolio of one asset class, whatever that asset class may be. It's good to have more than one type of asset. So I started with the short terms because they make more money than a long term door, but I knew that I didn't want to have that portfolio with them even though it was about half and half. So what I've done is take all that income from short terms and go invest in more traditional long term multifamily. I have some a lot of long term single families too, just because I want to have a diverse portfolio. A great example is last year with coronavirus, we Thought initially, and we ended up ended up being the opposite, but we thought, oh, crap, well, here it is. <laughs> Everybody's going to cancel in our short terms and the business is going to tank. But we worried about it because we had all our long terms to support it. And to, so we didn't have to panic like a lot of the people who only had short terms. turned out to be the opposite. And the short terms boomed after the shutdowns because everybody was dying to get out of their houses and didn't want to fly anywhere, but they would drive to those regional drivable markets and then we were ended up being more worried about our long-terms with the eviction moratoriums and all that. We only actually had one person do that. And so it ended up not being that bad. But because either way, whether we were worried about the short or worried about the long-terms, we didn't really have to worry that much because half our portfolio could support the other half, whichever one was not doing well. So that's what I suggest personally.
2: I'm curious real quick, before we move on to the next part of our show, I did want to ask a question because I know that in this process of operating and owning a short-term rental, there are many different, potentially many different, if you don't want to do it yourself, I guess you could call them partners, right? in getting the job done and getting the rentals up and ready to go. If anyone out there is listening and they're thinking, I want to get into this, but I don't even know who would clean the place, who would host the place. Like are there any companies out there that are like cleaning concierge services for Airbnb, short-term rentals, or like hosting services? I imagine there must be by now these like services that you can hire where they act as like the host of your property and they check people in or triage questions. Really asking for the person who wants to be a little bit more hands-off and doesn't want to Maybe live in the area and wants to make sure that there are somebody's going there and running through the property and making sure that all the plates are still there and
0: nothing's broken and that kind of thing. What does that look like? Well, that's a really great question. So, that is kind of what my company does for our clients, sort of. So, if you choose to use us, the short term shop, as your buyer's agents in any of the markets that we're in, we have a whole back end training program where we will teach you everything. From getting your listing set up to managing everything, all the little hacks and tricks and channel management tools to streamline your process and then also get you in touch with the local vendors on the ground that you need to be able to manage remotely. There is an app called Turnover BNB that specializes in connecting owners with cleaners in different markets. And there's a few things out there like that, but it's still kind of in its infancy but there's a lot of tools in the markets that I'm in since short-term rentals have been around since before the internet. There are lots of cleaners, lots of handymen, because that's like an actual industry in the markets that we're in. So it's pretty easy to find. It's not easy to find good help as in any industry, but it's easy to find help to at least get you to the point of finding the right person. And to be honest with you, your cleaner is kind of like your mini property manager because they're Mm going to tell you anything that they see wrong with the property because it's in their best interest that your property is in good shape too. Because if they're not telling you when things are breaking or getting worn out and you're getting bad reviews, and then because you're getting bad reviews, you're not getting booked Well, they're not working either because they're only working if you're getting booked. So it's in everybody's best interest for them to pay attention to that kind of stuff. And I'm kind of waiting for the cleaning industry to realize how important they are to us and like mutiny against us and raise all of their prices. (laughs) But for now, your cleaner is really that person. There are a few companies popping up that are like cleaning monitoring services. So they'll pop in after your cleaner once a week or however long, however often you want them to do it just to make sure that the cleaner is doing a good job and that things are looking good. So there's people out there like that. Got it. And then lastly, if you were to
2: say who this investment strategy is good for, kind of what is the ideal avatar? How would you describe that person? Would it be like a single younger person? Would it, could it be a mom who's busy with her kids? Tell mm-hmm. us about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, we have clients from everyone from like stay-at-home moms who are able to do it while they're hanging out with the kids to we have some uh, American clients living in China. I don't know why only China, no European countries or South American countries, but we do have a lot of American clients living in China that are buying here and managing themselves from China. Also, active duty military in the Middle East buying and managing from there while they're getting shot at. And it's typically people who are want to quit their jobs or want to free up one spouse in the relationship because it really is, while it is kind of a job, like it does take some time for one to manage one to two properties is really like under an hour a week. So we're typically seeing clients from all backgrounds and income levels who are looking for either to get out of their corporate job and a way to do that faster or same as I was, someone who really wants to just make a lot of income quickly so that they can buy more real estate. So it's really a wide variety. I will say the age range is typically... I know this because I had a call with my social media manager the other day. The age range is typically like late 20s to mid 40s. That's We don't get a lot of older clients than that. And we certainly don't get a lot of younger clients than that because they haven't reached the life experience level to be investing usually there are some exceptions to that rule, but that's kind of what we're seeing. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Awesome. We're we're going to roll into the next part of our
2: show, the Life and Money Show Spotlight. We're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is, what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design?
0: Great question. So my husband and I both, he's very, very involved. And I'm kind of the sourcing and marketing and sales side of our business. And he is very much the management and numbers guy. We both wake up at 4am and get a lot of work done so that we can then both get our exercise in before the kids wake up so that we can do things during the day to spend time with our kids so that we're not dumping them with their nanny For 14 hours a day, we'd get up and get everything done. And just to free up our time, freedom of time is important. So that if I want to take my daughter to go get ice cream at one o'clock in the afternoon, I can do that. When I had a corporate job, I could not do that. So just waking up early and getting a lot of things done before anybody gets up and needs anything from us has been the biggest life hack (laughs) I could ever offer. I love
2: that. And I bet you guys must be going to bed early too. So you guys can just all as a family, because if I got up at 4 a.m., I'd be going to bed <laughs> at 8 p.m. with my kids at the same time. Oh, so yeah. That if I easy. can be in bed
0: at 7, I will do it. I love going to oh, yeah. bed early. <laughs> yep, me too. Too.
2: It seems like the older I get, the earlier I go to bed. It's a funny thing that happens to you. Yep. All right. Second question is what is one life or money hack outside of the one that you just shared that you could share that will with our audience that will make an impact in their lives right now?
0: So, money hack that I have, and this is like super specific, but it has been super helpful in my just personal finance and bookkeeping. So, I know a lot of people, I'm super into the Mike McAuliffe's profit first method. Um, but this can work with a lot of different methods. So any anybody who subscribes to any kind of personal finance method where you're taking out a percentage of each deposit that goes into your bank account and putting it in a different bank account for whatever reason, whether it's taxes or savings or your fund for your next investment. So... We found a hack. We use Relay Financial, which is an online bank that's like super techie and millennial-ish and it's awesome. But there's another app that we use with that called Astra. And it works really great for me because as a real estate agent... All my checks are different amounts. So there's lots of little softwares out there for taking a percentage out of your check when your check is the same amount every time you just designate a dollar amount. But for me, since everything's constantly changing, it was always really difficult to go in and say, oh, well, what's 20% of this number, 20% of that number? So this app Astra, you can set it to an actual percentage of whatever the dollar amount is that comes in. And we have it set up with like 10 different bank accounts that we separate everything out into. And I don't ever have to touch it. I don't ever have to look at anything. All you have to do is set it up once. And then all your money separates to where you want it to go just automatically. And that is the best tool in the world. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. When we talk earlier about living an intentional life
2: by design, like talk about being intentional, right? Like with your money and how you're building and scaling your growth. I hear all too often, well, I don't have the money. I don't know where I could possibly get it from. And yet those same people are going out and not watching movies anymore outside the home, but they're maybe (laughs) buying their Starbucks or they're going to this and doing that and spending money in all these little places. When if you first take money off the top, no matter how you're getting paid and you take that money off the top to divert it to different things that are um, important to you, you'll get there. And so I love that though, because sometimes it's like that one little thing that can stop you too, from saving, you're like, well, how am I going to figure this out? Like, I don't know how I'm going to figure it out. Like I don't get paid the same every month. So how am I going to, I don't just get a W2 paycheck, but you found a solution for that. And I know a lot of our listeners are also entrepreneurs. And so that's super helpful because as Annie and I know too, no month is ever the same. No year is ever the same. So I love that. So I'll definitely have to check that out. All right. Last question is what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place?
0: Whew. I am hoping that it is teaching my children to be a uh, contributing good member of society and that their existence, I know it's making my world a better place, but making the world a better place altogether. So my focus is 100% on them. And so hopefully what I'm doing to make the world a better place is raising good kids.
1: Love it. Well, Julie and I are definitely passionate about that, teaching our kids financial literacy early on, teaching them about real estate investing so that they have those tools to go forth and do whatever they want, but be supported along the way. So Avery, this has been a phenomenal show. You've shared so many little good tips and insights with our listeners. I'm sure they're going to want to learn more. So tell them what's the best place they can go to learn about all you're doing at the short-term shop
0: right on the website at theshorttermshop.com. You can text us, you can email us or on Instagram at theshorttermshop. Avery Carl, real estate
1: investor and top agent at The Short-Term Shop and author of the upcoming book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. Thank you so much for being here with us and our listeners today, Avery. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Life & Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life
2: by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check
1: out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life & Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations.